true, if all that really is uh, what it, if Jesus really is who he claims to be, uh, then there are some serious uh, implications in terms of that. And uh, this morning, uh, that's what we're after, that's our endeavor, is to answer that question. Is it true? Is Jesus really, has he really resurrected himself from the dead? Is, is he really the risen Savior? And if so, what does that mean for us? Happy Easter. Good morning. It's a great morning, isn't it? I mean, it, it, this is a glorious day. I mean, just the morning itself was pretty glorious. But when you consider what it is that we remember and celebrate and what's going on, it just makes it that much more special. Now, this morning, we're going to be in John 11. John 11, I'd encourage you to get your Bibles out. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the back table there in uh, the sanctuary. We also have some in the lobby as well. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. And as you're turning to John 11, let me, let me, just, let me just be clear, okay? Let's be honest about the dynamics of Easter Sunday for a moment. I recognize and I realize that some, maybe many of you are here and you're really, really excited about this morning and rightfully so because you are celebrating the hope uh, that, 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 that drives everything that you do in your life. And I recognize for others of you that, that maybe you hear these people shouting and screaming and they're excited and you're like, man, it's kind of over the top. Like, I mean, we're at church. What, what's the big deal? And so you're here because it's Easter Sunday and that's what you do on Easter. You go to church. And hopefully it's not the only time you go to church. And, and if that is you, hopefully uh, that, that next week in the coming weeks, you, you're stirred and you're moved to continue coming to church. Some of you might be here because you were invited by a friend or a family worker or a, uh, a neighbor. And you're curious, or so you're wondering, like, I, okay, they go to church, but I haven't been to church in a while. Maybe you've never been to church before in your life. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been to church service. And we're so glad that you're here. And I hope that you've been very warmly welcomed. And then I understand this dynamic about Easter as well. I hope this isn't true of anyone in the room, but I know this happens. So, sometimes, sometimes you're just drug to church. Like against your will, strong arm. Now don't, okay, don't out someone in the room if that's you right now, like looking like, mm-hmm. Okay, don't do that. They know and you know. But I get it. Some of you are here and you really have no interest in being here. You're here because you're going to go with your family to lunch or you're going to do something else later in the day. But this is just like the first, this is kind of like what you have to suffer through to get to the other stuff. I get that. And hopefully by the end of the time, you're not like, well, that wasn't suffering. That was actually great. Or your life has changed or transformed because of it. Here's the deal. While the circumstances that has led each and every one of us to be sitting at this room at this point in time may uh, be different from one another. Here's what we share. Here's what we have in common with one another. Is, is that God's word is going to press each and every one of us to a truth, to a reality, a very pressing reality. And it comes in the form of a question that every single person has to answer. And, and, and in fact, I think you have to answer it over and over and over and over again in your life. And so in one sense, let me just take you to the end right now. John 11, verse 25 and 26. Here's what Jesus says to Martha. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Makes this incredible statement about himself. But then gets very pointed with Martha. And he says, do you believe this? 
And inasmuch as Jesus is pointing and pressing in on Martha in that moment, I would suggest to you that Jesus is pointing and pressing in to you and I this morning around that very same question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that the hope of new life is found in Jesus and in him alone? Do you believe this? That question is in front of you and I this morning. And while there's really a three ways we can answer that question, right? Yes, no, or maybe. Maybe is ultimately going to land in, in the yes or the no camp. The reality is, is that not only do you and I have to answer that question, we have to wrestle through the implications of what we answer and, and with our response to that question. And that's really what we want to do this morning is we want to walk through this text and wrestle through, do you believe this? And what does that actually mean to believe what Jesus is saying? And so in John 11, you have just this wild story of what Jesus does. And in fact, there's a few times in here that Jesus says some things and and you're just kind of scratching your, your head going, why would you say that? And what are you getting at here? But all of it, all of it, all of it is going to press us back to this reality and back to this question. Do you believe this? And so this morning, the, the, the main idea, the nail, the thrust of where God's word is leading us this morning is this. The hope of new life is found in the belief that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The hope of new life is found in the belief that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Normally, I'd read the text, but I want to just kind of walk through the story and let it unfold as we go. So I'm going to pause. I think we should pray. And where we would typically pray for another church in the area this morning, I would like to pray just for the global church and for all of God's church, the church capital C. Uh, And then we'll begin to walk through this text. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, we thank you. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for Easter Sunday. We thank you for what we get to celebrate. God, we recognize that why we are gathered here this morning is truly the only hope that we have. And so from the, the depths of our soul, we would say to you, Jesus, thank you. That you came, that you lived, that you died, and thank you, Lord, that you're not buried in a tomb, but that you're alive and that you are ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of the Father. God, we pray for your church. I think about for the last number of hours, churches that have gathered in the far reaches of Asia and then just sweeping across that continent and then Europe and Africa, and now us, our turn to gather and celebrate. We pray for your church, that you would be honored and lifted up today, that you'd be worshipped rightly in all things. God, we pray that uh, in, in ways never before seen, that people today would come to know the truth of who you are, that they would surrender their lives to you. Jesus, we pray that you would do that. God, we pray that for each and every one of us this morning, that you would speak very clearly into our hearts and into our lives. And that we would know fully who you are. And what it is to follow you, that we could answer with confidence that question that you put forward. Do you believe this? That we would say yes. And that we would live accordingly. We pray that you would make this true. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Title of the message this morning is the hope of a new life. 
the hope of a new life. And maybe let me just begin our time by asking this question. Have you ever hoped for a new life? I, I mean, I hope, honestly, all of us are like, no, never at all. But I'm not an idiot, okay? And while maybe we haven't hoped for an entirely new life, most of us can at least resonate with some sense of, I've, I've hoped for something different in my life, or I hoped I could change this aspect or this piece or this portion of my life. That you could do with your life what golfers will often do with golf, take a mulligan, pretend like that stroke never existed. Or like me when I was young, you remember the, origi- the original Nintendo and had that reset button? And when you get angry because the game was cheating, right? You know, you'd push that button three or four times as if you were going to stick it to the game. You teach you to cheat on me, right? And you just reset the whole thing. Maybe that's what you've longed for. And the reality is this is the distinct hope that's found in Jesus. This is the new life that is found in Jesus Christ. That there is a hope for a new life. And this morning, as we move through John 11, I, I got two points, just really, really simple this morning. Two points that I want to make out of John 11. Let me give you both of them up front, and they're in the, the, the notes in your bulletin, uh, if you want to find them there as well. But here they are. <clears throat> the hope of new life is rooted in God's glory, and the hope of new life comes through belief in Jesus. That's what we're going we're to spend the rest of our time unpacking those two truths that are found right here in John 11. And so I'd invite you to look at John 11. I'm going to read the first four verses where we see this first uh, truth coming out. The hope of new life is rooted in God's glory. Notice what John says in his gospel. He begins to tell us, uh, introduce us to some characters. Now there was a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. He tells us about Bethany that that was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the, Lord's oint, or, or anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Which is interesting that John puts us in here because he actually doesn't recount that until the next chapter. But John's gospel is the last gospel written, and many who would have been reading it would have already known that account. But he's connecting Lazarus with these two women. Verse 3, so the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so look at these first four verses. We, we see the hope of new life is rooted in God's glory. In a broader sense, we see two things more specifically about this. In a broader sense, the first thing we see is this, is that we exist for God's glory. Did you hear that? You and I exist for God's glory. It is crucial, it's crucial to know that our primary reason for existence is tied to the glorification, to the honor, to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We exist for God. Hear me, hear me, hear me when I say this. We exist for God. He does not exist for us. And life, life can be so maddeningly frustrating if we don't understand this truth. If you invert these, if you get these backwards, uh, you're going to be really, really disappointed in life. Because if God exists for you, then any time and every time something goes wrong, then God has failed you. And the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, here's just a handful of places. We could go to a hundred places in the scriptures, but here's just a handful that bear out this truth. 
Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare God's glory. Psalm 96, you and I are commanded to declare his glory. Isaiah 6 tells us the whole earth is full of God's glory. Isaiah 24 tells us to give glory to the name of the Lord. Isaiah 48 tells us, my glory I will not give to another. And here's really maybe the best example from the scriptures. In Isaiah 43, when, he, when God tells us, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. We exist for the glory of God. Now, the hope of our new life is rooted in that, but we have to understand why we're even here and what God is after in and through us. And so what's happening here in these first four verses, what Jesus is making very, very clear, this story is not about Lazarus. It's not about Mary and Martha. It's not about the disciples. It's not about the onlookers. It's about him. And it's about his glory. And it's about what he's going to accomplish. The hope of new life is rooted in God's glory. We exist for God's glory. Notice this secondly in verse 4. That God's glory is revealed in suffering. God's glory is revealed in suffering. When Jesus heard it, he said. And this is, can we just be honest? This is an odd response. I mean, you're like, wait, wait, wait. What? He says this. The illness does not lead to death. And he's not saying that. He won't die. What, what Jesus is actually saying is, listen, when this is all finished, he's not going to be dead. He's just pointing them to the end result, the ultimate result. The illness does not lead to death. It, okay, what is it referring to there? Well, it's referring to the illness. The illness is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man, or the Son of God, may be glorified through it. See, God's glory is revealed in suffering. Not exclusively, not solely, but this is one of the ways in which God chooses to reveal his glory is through suffering or through trial or through hardship or through illness. And in fact, it, lest you think this is super weird or that I'm misunderstanding this, we can go to multiple other places in the Bible. In fact, one of those places, you just flip back two chapters to John 9 and Jesus is having this exchange with the disciples and they encounter this blind man and they say, Jesus, who sinned this man or his parents that caused him to be born blind? And Jesus' response is, neither. This man was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed in him. Right? Another example of God's glory being revealed in suffering. I think it's important for us to know following Jesus does not come absent of suffering. In fact, following Jesus doesn't eliminate suffering. It simply changes how I see it and it gives me a hope to endure it. God's glory is revealed in suffering. Now, I, I, I mean, if you're anything like me, when you find yourself in times of suffering, when you find yourself in times of trial or difficulty, my first thought isn't like, oh, let me connect this to God's glory. In fact, a lot of times, that's probably the last thing that comes uh, into my mind. I'm guessing the same is true uh, for you. And so maybe you're even going, okay, what, what's the connection here between suffering and glory? I, I, I'm not seeing it. Let, let me try to frame it out a little bit more for us. Jesus loves you and I so much. God's love for us is so great that he is willing to push us to a place of difficulty, to push us to a place of trial, to push us to a place of hardship so that we are keenly aware of what we need more than anything, which is him. God is willing to take, listen very carefully to me, God is willing to take everything from you 
so that you are forced to realize and reckon with the reality that what you need more than your health or what you need more than prosperity or what you need more than that possession or that thing or that relationship is you need him. He is willing to take everything from you in order to accomplish that. And here's why, because it is what is best for us. It might not feel like it in the moment. You might not enjoy it. Um, And understand, God's not some capricious ruler that takes great delight in watching us suffer. It's rooted in his love. It's for his glory, but it's also for our benefit because God wants to point out our most ultimate need, which is our need for him. And that is what's happening here. See, when when we come to suffering, when we come to trial, we come to difficulty or or, or struggles in our life, what, what it does is it reminds us of the brevity and the futility and the frailty of this life, and it points us towards eternity. And it helps us to remember that eternity with Christ is far more important than the things that are in front of us here today. And this is where perspective is so crucial. Because in the moments of trial, in the moments of hardship, in the moments of difficulty, what God wants you to do is God wants you to be able to look up at him before you ever look out at what's in front of you. He wants you to be able to fix your eyes on him and to trust that he is enough, that he is sufficient, that he has given you everything that you need. And so let me just ask you this morning, what's your struggle What's your trial? What's your difficulty? What's your place of darkness or your valley or the the thing in your life that is utterly crippling you? Maybe it's a broken marriage. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's the death of a spouse or a parent or a child or a good friend. Maybe your career is in shambles. Maybe uh, you have a wayward child. Maybe up to this point, God has just not seen fit to allow you to have children. Maybe you're in financial ruin. Maybe you're fighting some illness or disease or some chronic pain in your life. What's that thing for you? And as you fill in the blank on that thing, see what God wants you to do is he wants you to look up and to see him before you ever look out into that the, the suffering, the struggle, the difficulty, it's, right, it's pushing us back to the place where I'm aware of my need for God. And so here's something you probably don't hear very often, but I'll say it because it's true. Our suffering, our struggle, our difficulty actually becomes a means of God's grace because it reveals to us again our ultimate need of Christ. We hope or the hope of new life is rooted in God's glory. See, one of the things that we say uh, pretty often around here is we would rather that God allow us to have difficulty or trial or pain or hardship in our life so that we be drawn near to him than for God to give us everything that we could possibly want and be far from him. Because the worst thing that you could ever have or the worst place that you could ever be is to be far from God. The hope of a new life is rooted in God's glory. Notice this secondly, verses 5 through 27. Second point. The hope of new life comes through belief in Jesus. The hope of new life comes through belief in Jesus. It's rooted in God's glory. It's about him. It's accomplished by him. It's through him. It's for him. 
But the hope of new life for us comes through belief in Jesus. In fact, if you look through the remainder of John 11, you see this, this concept of belief just constantly uh, showing up over and over and over again. And it's tied back to the question where we started, do you believe this? Right? Do you believe this? And so for the re- remainder of our time, we'll attempt to answer the question and work through the implications of what it is to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so three things in verses 5 through 27 tied to this idea of the hope of new life comes through belief in Jesus. Here's the first, look at verses 5 through 8. We believe that Jesus loves people. I frame these as we believe that they're affirmative statements that you and I could hold on to, but we believe that Jesus loves people. In fact, let me read verses 5 through 8. So Jesus has that response in verse 4, and then John moves the story along, and he tells us this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Weird. We'll come back to it, I promise. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? The hope of new life comes through belief in Jesus. The first thing we believe that Jesus loves people. Notice a few things about this idea of Jesus loving people in verses 5 through 8. Here's the first, verse 5, very simple. Jesus loves people. That's not hard, is it? And it's not hard to see in the text. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's pretty obvious. He loved them, and he loves people. And and, uh, throughout uh, the the, the whole of the scriptures, we see that truth being bore out over and over and over again. In fact, uh, we're going to see a couple expressions of his love here in verses uh, 6 through 8. Maybe a couple of things that help us just think uh, more broadly about this. Think of verses like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's what we're celebrating and remembering this weekend is that God gave us his son uh, to die in our place, to take our sins upon himself. Think about Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in this and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't waiting till we had everything together. It wasn't waiting till we were good or perfect or right, but we were broken and, 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 and rebellious and rejected him that God is uh, showering his love upon us. So let me just be really clear. Let me affirm for you this morning without any reservation. God loves you. Did you hear that? God loves you. Now, you might struggle to believe that, but it's true. God's love for you is unwavering. It's true. It's faithful. It, it, it can't be uh, stopped. But some of you, when I say that and even qualify that, you're like, well, I don't know. I don't know. And it's probably because you have a mistaken view of God's love. You have some mistaken understanding of how God's love works or operates. And so here's two. We could do a hundred. Okay, but here's two mistaken views of God's love. The first is this, is that his love is conditional. The first mistaken view is that God's love is conditional. And so for the, here, here's the reality. Far too many of us, right? Far too many of us have been loved and I'll... I'll not really the right word, but right, we have been loved conditionally by others. And so we just assume because it's all, that's all that we know, this is how God loves us. And so the problem with that is anyone with the past, anyone who's failed, anyone who's has, who has issues or skeletons in the closet, well, God could not possibly love you. 
the reality, all of us have skeletons in the closet. All of us have issues. All of us have a, a history of sin. If God's love is conditional, then none of us could be loved by God. I will love you if that is not a love of another. That is simply a love of yourself. God does not love that way. God's love does not function or work that way. That is not how he loves. And so let me just tell you this morning, if, if your hang up with God is, well, God could never love me because you do not understand God's love. You, you may have been loved um, wrongly throughout your life. You may have a mistaken view of love. You don't understand God's love. God's love is not conditional. It's the antithesis of that. It's unconditional. Right? He demonstrates his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while you were broken, messy, rebellious, and rejecting God, God acted on your behalf. His love is not conditional. Here's the second common mistake we make with God's love is we say that his love is non-restrictive. Here's what I mean by that. Well, if God loves me, his primary intent is to make me happy. So I'll just do whatever I want, and because God loves me, that will just work out. I'm just curious, do you know any relationship where that holds true and actually holds water? Like, you think about your marriage, could you imagine telling your wife, hey, you know what? Your primary objective is to make me happy, so I'm just going to do whatever I want, and you're going to love me no matter what. That is a one-way ticket to the couch, my friends, all right? It ain't happening. There's no human relationship that works this way. So why would we be surprised to think that God wouldn't, would, would be any different? God gives us rules and standards, and he does so for, because it's what's best for us. It's what's good for us. We like to say when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. See, because when you think about, think about parents, I've got four young kids. We have a variety of rules and standards and expectations in their home. I think back to when my kids were little. And if you came to the kitchen, you didn't touch the stove. Why would we tell them not to touch the stove? Because I was some power-hungry dictator? No, because I loved my children. And I recognized that they did not know that if I touch the stove, it's going to inflict serious pain upon my body. And see, God's no different. God gives us standards and parameters in our life for our good. It's part of his love for us. Right? Jesus loves people. Notice this secondly, part of his love, what we see in verse 6 and 7, that Jesus' love is manifested in that he does what's best for others. Now, this is that verse that I said was kind of weird. So in verse 5, John tells us Jesus loves these guys. Verse 6, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What in the world is going on there? I don't know about you, that doesn't seem very loving to me. You find out someone's sick and dying, what do you do? You race to be with them. So why in the world would he stay two days longer before venturing down there? Well, I think it's hard to see in the moment, but when you step back, it's pretty obvious that he's doing what's best for them. He's doing what's best for Lazarus. He's doing what's best for Mary and Martha. He's doing what's best for the disciples. See, because love, true love is concerned for the well-being of another. Uh, my favorite definition for love, I got it from my mother-in-law, and I think she got it from somewhere else, uh, but I'm not sure where, so I'll attribute it to her. Uh, here's the definition of love. Love is taking the initiative to act sacrificially on the behalf of another. 
Love is taking the initiative to act sacrificially on the behalf of another. And I would suggest to you that is exactly what Jesus is doing in this situation. See, because what, what everyone needed most wasn't for Lazarus to be better. What they needed most was a fuller view of who God was. And so he was going to accomplish that, not by healing Lazarus from his sickness, but from actually raising him from the dead. I should point out that John says nothing in the text with respect to how Jesus felt about this. So while he waited two days, there's no indication in the text that he was like, oh man, we're going to wait two days, suckers. Those fools over there, they're going to be stressing out, freaking out what's going on, and and say any of that. In fact, I imagine, if anything, that, that this was probably really hard for Jesus. He loved this guy. But he was most concerned with their ultimate well-being, which was tied to them having a fuller view of who he was. And so they waited. And maybe you find yourself in a place of waiting. Maybe God has you waiting on something. Maybe God is saying no to something. And maybe you're sitting here and you're frustrated and like, God, why won't you deal with this? Why won't you solve this? Why won't you remedy this? Why won't you heal this? Why won't you restore this? And is it possible? Is it possible that the more pressing need isn't that that issue is resolved in your life? Is it possible that the most pressing need is that you need a fuller view of who Jesus actually is? See, because Jesus does what is best for others. Thirdly, notice this verse 8. They tell him, at the end of verse 7, he says, let us go to Judea again. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? See, Jesus goes, he went when it was dangerous. He went when there was great personal risk to his well-being. They were just trying to stone him. I mean, we know he's going to die. That's what we're celebrating this morning. But his love has come at a great risk and a great cost to himself. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that we're not guilty of forgetting from time to time just how much it has cost God for us to be reconciled to him. In fact, that's what we remember this weekend. We believe, we believe that Jesus loves others. Notice the second, look at verses 9 through 16. We believe that Jesus calls us to follow him. We believe that Jesus calls us to follow him. And so notice what the text says, verse 9, Jesus answered his response to, hey, weren't they just trying to stone you? Doesn't really answer their question. He just says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples are a little bit confused as to what Jesus is saying. In verse 12, they, they respond, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Like, we don't need to go wake him up. He'll be fine. Let him get some rest and he'll recover. And John tells us in verse 13 of their confusion when he says Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. So in verse 14, Jesus clarified and tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that he was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. And here in verse 9 through 16, you have Jesus modeling obedience, but you have Jesus also demanding or requiring obedience of his followers. 
Part of this, do you believe this question, is we believe that Jesus calls us to follow him. Two things with respect to that. The first is this, we follow by walking in the light. We follow by walking in the light. Now, Jesus' response to him being stoned is he starts talking about hours in a day and light and darkness. What's he getting at there? What's he alluding to? Well, in the scriptures, when you see references to light specifically around walking in the light, it's, it's alluding to obedience to God, faithfulness to God, righteousness towards God. And so what he's saying, part of following him, is that we're called to follow God, that we're following God in obedience, that we're surrendering our lives to Him, that we're pushing forward in all that God has for us. And it's not just, I know what God says, but it's, I will do what God says. I will surrender my life to the truth of what Jesus is teaching me. We follow by walking in the light. Notice this also in verse 16. We follow by surrendering our life. We follow by surrendering our life. Now, Thomas... Some of you, if you know anything about the Gospels and uh, the disciples, Thomas usually doesn't have a great reputation. I mean, he's kind of a dingbat at times, right? And, and he's often referred to as doubting Thomas. I want to see the holes. I want to touch it. I want to feel it. So say whatever you want about Thomas. But in John eleven sixteen, this guy is nails. Now, he's a little confused as to what is actually going to happen to him. But that just, that, that, that only serves to amplify his decision here. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. See, in Thomas' mind, going to see Lazarus means we're going to die. We're gonna, it's going to cost us our life. Let's go. See, that's the essence of following Jesus. Salvation is free. Following Jesus will cost you everything. It will cost you your life. Do not be deluded. There's there's some false gospels out there that that will tell you, hey, you you can be loved by God. You You can have all the benefits of following God, but you can do your own thing. It's simply not true. It's simply not true. And that's what Thomas is teaching us here. We follow by surrendering our life. That the whole of our lives are now submitted to God. And that, that doesn't mean that not without sin or not without issues or not without struggles, but just that, God, you're in control of my life and you, whatever you tell me to do, I am willing to do. We're obedient to Jesus and all that he commands of us. Now, let me not sugarcoat this. This is an expectation that Jesus has. He expects this. It's not a suggestion. It's not like, hey, if it works for you, Go all over the Gospels and see with great clarity where Jesus is saying, this is what you're to do. Now, this idea of surrendering our life and following Jesus, sometimes it gets confusing for us. So we get hung up on the obedience and what does that look like or not look like? And how do we do that? And so let let me just maybe help frame this just a little bit. And imagine if, if, if obedience is walking down the road, here's a couple of ditches that people tend to fall off into on the sides of this. One is this. If I keep the rules then God loves me. Okay, well, we've already talked about God's love not being conditional, and that's a good thing, because let me just be straight with you. You can't keep the rules. You can't. Not not only can you not do it for the whole of your life, I can promise you, you're not going to get to the end of today without doing it. Most of you won't get out of the service without violating one of God's commandments. And if you're sitting there getting angry about that, like, well, you don't know, you just did it, okay? All right. So 
game, set, match. You can't do it. And we should thank God that this is not the way in which it works. Because if, it, if this was the way in which God works, none of us would have any hope. You can't keep his rules. And so the idea of surrendering our life is not like, well, if I keep all the rules, then God loves me. No, you're, you're going to sin. You're going to fail. You're going to continue to struggle in areas of your life. But it's that we continue to persist and follow after him. See, the other ditch that we fall off into on the other side isn't that if I keep the rules, God loves me. It's if I keep the rules, God owes me. That one's scary and dangerous. Some of you might even be sitting here today going, well, I went to church. God, what are you going to do for me? Serious. And we have this mistaken notion where when I do something, I can put God into my debt. And what we've forgotten is all the things that God has done for us and all the ways that we are indebted to him. First of all, you can't keep the rules, so God owes you nothing. On top of that, I mean, if you really wanted to do like an actual accounting of this, I'm not sure that we got a number that goes that high. And I know you mathematicians, there's no and you just, that's my point. Mathematics can't capture the debt that we owe. And so when we talk about following, when we talk about surrendering, we come back to this question. Do I believe this? Do I believe this? And when I answer this question, I answer all the implications. See, I can follow Jesus and I can follow him his way or I can reject him. There's no third way. There's not a middle ground like, well, I kind of want the benefits and I want like peace with God, but I want to do it my own way. It doesn't work like that. Jesus is all or nothing in or out. And to reject any aspect of following Jesus is to reject Jesus. Here's the final piece, verse 17 to 27 what we've been moving towards. We believe that Jesus loves others. We believe that Jesus calls us to follow him. Here's the third thing. We believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus comes. Let me just maybe summarize here some of this. Jesus comes to the tomb. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Mary and Martha hear that he's coming. Martha goes out to meet him in verse 20. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died certainly possible. But again, that's not the primary piece that Christ was after here. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Maybe a veiled reference to like, I know you could do it. You could do it if you wanted to. Can you raise him from the dead? I know you could. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha's response is theologically astounding here. It's fantastic. She says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, right? She has that hope, that eternal hope that comes from Christ. And here is Jesus' response. I am the resurrection and the life. We're talking about the resurrection and the last day. It's me. It's found in me. It's rooted in me. It's tied to me. I'm that. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This awesome statement that he makes, but then pressing right in on Martha. Martha, do you believe this? Okay, let's fast forward 2,000 years. And Jesus is speaking to you, loved one, and here's what he's saying. 
He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And now he's looking square at you. Marjorie, do you believe this? Ernie, do you believe this? Molly, do you believe this? See, for each and every one of you, you put your name in there because he's asking you this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that I came and, 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 and paid the price? See, you understand when we sin, and we all sin, the Bible is very clear that all of us sin. When we sin, we are separated or alienated from God. And there's no amount of good work. There's nothing that you and I could do to reconcile ourselves back to God, to put ourselves back into God's good graces, to, to, to be um, merited as righteous before God. We're stained forever through our sin. And what Jesus did when he came, he took your place, he took my place, and he died the death that you and I deserved so that we could be reconciled, that we could be made right with God once again. That's what he's talking about in terms of the resurrection and the life. And so I'm asking you this morning, each and every one of you, do you believe this? Now, let me qualify this. Let me give you another example just to maybe help. Show of hands, how many people in here believe eating vegetables is good for you? Raise your hand if you believe that to be true. Okay? Most, some of you are like, I'm not, that's a dumb question. Okay, fine. I know you don't not believe that. We all believe vegetables are good for you. It's one thing, listen, it's one thing to believe that vegetables are good for you. It's another thing to be staring at a stalk of celery and a Twinkie. And to make the decision. See, you could be sitting here this morning and you can know in your head, well, yeah, I know Jesus is God. I know that he's the resurrection and the life. I believe what he's saying. It's one thing to believe it here. It's another thing to believe it here and allow it to transform the entirety of who you are. And that is what he is calling us to. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? They go to the tomb. Talks more about this very thing. And he tells Lazarus to come out. What does he do? He comes out. Lazarus is dead today. He lived and then he died again. I mean, in one sense, kind of an unfortunate soul. Man, he died twice. That's a real bummer, right? Jesus died. He's not still dead. The grave is empty. He is alive. He is risen. And not only is he alive, but he is ruling and reigning as the Savior. But you have to answer the question, do I believe this? And then you have to work through the implications of how you respond to that question. Now, our desire, our desire is that each and every person here would know Christ personally and relation not simply that i know about him but that i know him truly and personally and relationally and i i realize there's some of you that i might not see again till next year or that i may never see again so i'm not going to let this moment slip away from us do not do not do not walk out of here without settling this issue in your heart don't do it 
if there are questions, if you're unsure of something, if you're like, man, I, I, I need some more explanation, that we will have folks available up front on the sides. I will be down here in the middle in a moment. Um, I'm going to have uh, our staff and our elders and their wives stand, and you can grab one of them. If you came with someone, feel free to ask them. If you don't like the person you came with, then fine, ask someone else, okay? But find someone and ask them that before you walk out those doors, you have settled in your heart of hearts this question. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray, God, I pray for each and every person in this room that this question that comes to us, do you believe this, that we could answer with confidence, that we could answer with surety, that we could answer without reservation, yes, I do. And that our lives would be submitted and surrendered to you. That there would be no looking back. That the whole of who we are would be committed to you and to you alone. Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? Give us hearts to know the truth of who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen.